Our scripture this evening comes once again from Acts, and we'll begin looking at uh, chapter 21 and read through verse 36 of, <clears throat> uh, read through verse 29 of chapter 22, 21, 20, 37 through 22:29. Here now as God speaks to us from His word. <clears throat> as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, "May I say something to you?" And he said, "Do you know Greek? Are you not an Egyptian uh, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness?" Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from, then I from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear, the voice, hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. 
for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Let's pray together. Lord, our Father, we come to you, and we ask that you will guide us as we look into your word. We acknowledge our Father in heaven that without the power of your spirit in our hearts and minds that we will miss the points that you have for us. And so we ask that you will come and work in us, guide us and direct us, enable us, our Father in heaven, to pay heed to what it is that you have for us. And we make our prayer to you in Jesus' name and we say together, Amen. If you like to read or watch courtroom dramas, uh, you know that uh, the closing argument by the defense is frequently the high point of the whole presentation, whether it be book or play or, or movie. And some of you may have been fascinated by you know, what have become classic examples of uh, closing arguments, uh, for example, in To Kill a Mockingbird or in A Time to Kill. And you know that in such settings, the defense attorney seeks, first of all, to make a kind of connection with the, with the jury to whom he is speaking. And then he sets forth information, and that information is designed to be most favorable to his client, to try to uh, uh, and make sure that the jury thinks well of the defendant. And in dramas, we find that the jury often is portrayed as just hanging on every word that the defense attorney is speaking. But when we look at these uh, classic uh, cases of uh, defense, uh, uh, final arguments by the defense, uh, we very seldom see that the defense attorney, right at the very end in his last sentence, some, says something that turns, the, that turns the jury completely against him and completely against his client. Now we have something like that in Paul's defense of himself in the front of the temple uh, crowd in Acts chapter 22. It seems that Paul is holding them. In fact, Paul is using information that will exonerate him in some ways. That seems to be what Paul is doing here. And he seems to be just uh, making it there. I mean, everything seems to be pointing in that direction until that, that last sentence, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And it seems that this sympathetic audience reverts back to these people who want to murder him. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we see in this, in this text. 
And so let's look at this situation in which Paul finds himself, and uh, let's first of all look at, uh, at his situation, then at his defense, and then finally in this text we see a repeat of the Roman rescue. And as you follow uh, Paul's defense, uh, kind of pay attention to the way in which the Lord Jesus is overseeing everything that is going on. Uh, if I could say it, the good parts and then the last part as well. Uh, Jesus is at work and directing all of this. Um, uh, last week we saw what happened to Paul when he went into the temple and uh, uh, to complete a vow that he had made. You know, for those of you who are here, just a little review for those of you who weren't just to catch up. Uh, Paul had come back to Jerusalem. Uh, the Christian brothers there had suggested that because people were saying he was against the law and telling uh, uh, Jews not to practice the law, not to engage in the traditions of their fathers, uh, they suggested to him that he take this vow that for, uh, together with four other men who were there. And so Paul is fulfilling this and he goes into the the uh, temple, and while he's in the temple, if you will recall, some Asian Jews see him there, and they basically say, that's Paul. He's the guy that's out here uh, trying to get everybody everywhere to stop following the Jewish law, and he's bringing Gentiles into the temple. This is a false. This is completely false. We, we know that. That's, that's clear from what we looked at the last time. And so these people, uh, the, 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 those men who were gathered in the temple, uh, they, they go after Paul, and uh, their object is to kill him. They're, they're to murder him in the temple. We talked about that last week, the way in which they did it. And while the, while the Jews are engaged in trying to kill Paul, the Romans, who are, who are in a fortress just a little above it with stairs going down into the temple, come rushing down. Uh, a whole horde of Roman soldiers come down, and they rescue Paul. And so we meet him today after his rescue by the Romans, and the Romans are taking Paul back up those steps to the fortress. That's, that's what's going on here. So that's where we see Paul. He's on his way up to the fortress. And as they're going up to the fortress, uh, Paul goes, uh, turns to the tribune, that's the, the, the military officer who was in charge probably of the entire uh, barracks of people who were uh, in, 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 there at that time. And, and, and this uh, tribune, uh, the first thing he is, is when Paul says, can I speak to you? Uh, the tribune says, you speak Greek? <laughs> I mean, he, he was surprised that Paul was speaking Greek. And I think the surprise is probably not just that uh, Paul, who was a traveler, could have had a few words of Greek and sort of stumbled around with the language like I do when I travel. You know, I learn a few words like hello and thank you and uh, that's it. Uh, you know, Paul spoke like someone who really understood Greek, who was, was fluent in it. And the, and the tribune is surprised because the tribune uh, thought that Paul was some kind of revolutionary. In fact, he thought he was a specific kind of revolutionary, namely an Egyptian. Now this Egyptian uh, had taken some men and they were going to uh, attack. They were the guys who had these little swords and they were going to uh, cut everybody up. That's who the assassins are. And, and Paul, I mean the, the Tribune, thinks that's who, this, this, that's who he thinks Paul is. Now we know some other things about it. Uh, Jerome tells us about, about this, this uh, Egyptian. And, and all of his people were killed. Uh, uh, Luke tells us there were 4,000. Uh, uh, Jerome is, uh, not Jerome, uh, uh, <clears throat> thinks that there are more people uh, there, uh, many more is, is what he has to say to, to us about it. <clears throat> but any, <clears throat> anyway, 
Now, that's who the um, Tribune thinks that, that Paul is. That's, that's his uh, judgment of he is. But Paul explains to the Tribune that he came from the city of Tarsus in Cilicia. And uh, he calls himself uh, a citizen of that city. Now, Tarsus is, was an important place in the Roman world. And so we'll see uh, Paul through here. In some ways, I think there's a little bit of one-upmanship going on with Paul here. He, he tells this fellow, this uh, tribune, certain things that says to the tribune, don't think I'm some yokel that you sophisticated uh, Roman uh, are much better than I am. And so he tells him, first of all, I come from... Um, I come from Tarsus, and Tarsus is a well-known city. It's, it's an independent city, as a matter of fact. It's got some of its own ruling and things of that sort. It's not an ordinary city in Rome, Rome in the Roman world. So he, he, he tells him this. Now, now, Paul then begins to speak to the, uh, to the crowd. I'm, I'm assuming that some way the, the tribune let the crowd know that he was, Paul was going to speak to them. And then Paul, in a typical way in which Luke explains this, makes some kind of hand motion, uh, something like that, I assume. And the people look at him. But when Paul begins to speak, they're amazed also. Here's the tribune who says, you speak Greek? Here are the Jews, and they're amazed because he speaks, what our text says is Hebrew. We just don't know for certain whether it's the Hebrew language or whether it's Aramaic. Aramaic was much more common language. There were those who were sophisticated and probably still understood Hebrew. But Aramaic was probably the more prominent language. It's my judgment that Paul was probably speaking in Aramaic. But regardless of what it was, the Jews pay attention to him. Now, we don't know what the Jews were thinking, but if they thought he was a Jew from Asia, many of the Jews from Asia would not have spoken Aramaic. They would have only spoken Greek, and they would have been back for Pentecost, like Paul was there for Pentecost, and so they would have, they would have been surprised. This is, this is not the guy we thought he was. Uh, this is not that uh, guy who comes from the Gentile world and brings Gentiles into the, into the temple. I mean, we begin to see this unfolding as we, as, as we see it coming in here. Now, now Paul uh, gets their attention, if you will, and then he begins his uh, defense. And the first thing that Paul does is he sets forth his pedigree. And if you could think about this in the way in which a defense attorney tries to make the, the audience, make the jury in this case, uh, attracted to him. There's, there's a kind of personal connection that juries, uh, that uh, defense attorneys and juries wait. And I do think Paul is trying to do the same thing. He's trying to connect with the uh, Jews who just a few minutes ago, or maybe 10 minutes ago, we don't know how long, and we're trying to kill them. So he's trying to make some kind of a, a connection here. And so he, he tells the crowd also that he was born in Tarsus, and the crowd, as well as the Romans, uh, ought to have been impressed by this. But Paul adds that he was born in Tarsus, but he says, I was brought up here in Jerusalem. Now, okay. That's one step up. I mean, if you were an ancient Jew, sure, Tarsus is an important city, but there's no city in the world that's as important as Jerusalem. Uh, that's, that's sort of what Paul is telling them. So he tells them, I was, I, I was brought up here in Jerusalem, and not only was I brought up here in Jerusalem, I also studied at the feet of Gamaliel. So that's what he's uh, pointing out to them here. Now, my take is that Paul probably came to 
to uh, Jerusalem sometime in his uh, childhood, his youth. And one of the reasons why I suspect that Paul's family had come to uh, Jerusalem is because we'll find out later on that Paul's sister's son actually comes to Paul as overheard there's a plot on Paul's life and he comes to Paul while Paul is in the barracks in prison there. So it seems like Paul had some family in Jerusalem. So Paul comes, tells them, I was brought up in Jerusalem, but, but the clincher here is that he said, I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, I have to be careful here, but, you know, it's like the person who says, oh, you went to Geneva, did you, Alan? I went to Harvard. It's that sort of thing that goes on there. Uh, to study at the feet of Gamaliel was to study at the best place. And uh, not only was Gamaliel a good teacher, he's someone that we had met back earlier in Hackstack, uh, uh, that, that uh, talked to the Sanhedrin, was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he's a well-known Jewish scholar. And not only is he a well-known Jewish scholar, but he's also a Pharisee. And so Paul tells these people that, that I'm, I study with Gamaliel and I'm of the strictest sort of Jew that there can be. And that's the way in which the uh, Pharisees would have described themselves. And uh, uh, that's what he means when he says that he was taught us uh, the strict manner of the law with our fathers. And that indicates that he's a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, uh, Paul would have been characterized as very zealous for God. And so in his defense, he pays a compliment uh, to his audience because he says, I was brought up to be really zealous for the law, just like I'm sure all of you fellows are really zealous for the law. I try to keep in your mind what Paul is doing here in his defense, uh, trying to, to, to make a connection, if you will, with his audience. And... Uh, uh, Paul uh, uh, reminds his audience that he did more than study the law, he did more than zealously follow the law, but he also uh, went after Christians. He, he tells them here, he says, I persecuted the way. Uh, listen to Paul as he talks about himself there. He says, I'm from Tarsus. Uh, I study with Gamaliel. I'm really strict. <laughs> There's no fooling around when it comes to dealing with the law. And, and if you doubt that, remember, I'm the guy who persecuted the people following the way. That is Christians. That's the way in which Luke often refers to the Christian uh, faith. He says, I persecuted these people. He says, that's, that's, that's what I did. Now, remember, these Jews are saying, this guy goes around all over the world telling people not to follow Judaism. And Paul is saying, whoa. Look at the, my background, look at my pedigree, if you will, as he points all these things out. And Paul, uh, um, uh, Paul points out that, uh, that his persecution of the Christians includes both men and women. Uh, he claims that he persecuted the way to the death. Now, we don't know Paul's exact role in putting Christians to death. We don't, don't know what he did. We just don't have those records. We do know that Luke tells us back in chapter 9 that Paul breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And in addition, and Paul, we'll come back and see this because Paul brings it up, he played a role in Stephen's death when Stephen was martyred. And Paul goes on and he highlights the extent of his zeal. He's telling them, I was zealous here in Jerusalem, but that wasn't enough to contain my zeal. Not only was I zealous in Jerusalem, but I wanted to go even to Damascus, where there were Jews there, and I wanted to persecute those who had uh, begun to follow the way there also. And he says, I got letters. And I got letters from whom? From 
the high priest. Not only did I get letters from the high priest to do this, I got letters from the Sanhedrin, from the council. I went to the big guys, and they said, go. Go to Damascus and persecute people who are Christians. That's what Paul is telling them there. And Paul says, you don't have to take my word for this. <laughs> you can go and ask the high priest, or you can go and ask members of the Sanhedrin. That's, that's what I did. So and that's where we see Paul as he did these things, as he was on his way to Damascus. He sets this all up. And what Paul does in relating his pedigree is show that he is the most zealous of opponents to Jewish converts to Christianity. And uh, he, did, he did not uh, do this out of ignorance, but he did this out of this sophisticated uh, Pharisee, well-trained in the law. That's, that was who Paul was. And I can imagine that any of those in the crowd, if they are listening to him as the way in which Luke uh, tells us that they are, I suspect, I mean, I just think in my mind, I think about old men all the time, I guess. I wonder why. Uh, but I can just see old men there saying, hey, that's the kind of son I want like that young fella. <laughs> that's the kind of guy I want. That seems to be what Paul has set before the people here as he, as he tells them about his pedigree, about his background, in particular about his persecution of people who were the followers of the way. Now, Paul then talks about his trip to Damascus. And he tells them, we're going to Damascus. And while I'm going to Damascus, and Luke points out that Paul says it was about noon. Now, I've never been to Damascus, but I've been in some places in the, uh, that part of, of Asia. And in the, about noon, most days, it's bright. <laughs> I mean, there's sun, there are no clouds, it's just bright. And Paul says, about noon, the brightness of the sun is in some ways paled by the brightness that comes of this heavenly vision that comes to the Apostle Paul. In fact, this brightness is so bright that Paul falls down. Now, we don't know if Paul was walking or if Paul's riding on some animal or not. But he falls down, and not only does he fall down, he can't see anymore. I mean, this, this light is blinding. Now, I don't know if you've been, say, in American desert in some places or someplace in the desert, but, you know, you, you know what happens to you when you look up at the sun. You can't see anything. That's sort of what we think, I think, happens to Paul at this point with this heavenly light. And while Paul is on the ground, Paul hears a voice speaking to him. And the voice is that of the Lord Jesus. And he asks Paul, why is he persecuting him? The, the him there is, of course, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus identifies himself in response to Paul's query about who this is, is confronting him. Now note, I think it's important to note here that, that what Jesus says to the Apostle Paul, he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now if you're a smart aleck young person, you may say it wasn't Jesus who was being persecuted, Paul was on his way to arrest Christians and take them to Jerusalem for their punishment. But notice the way in which Jesus looks at the persecution of his church. I don't think that's irrelevant in the way in which Paul presents this. That, that when Paul took Christians and took them to the uh, uh, authorities in Jerusalem to have their punishment, when, when, when Paul did that, Jesus judges that when his people are persecuted, he's persecuted. And I don't think we often think about that. 
I don't think we often think about the way in which Jesus thinks of himself as being united to us. Oh, yeah, we, 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 we look at Pauline things in preaching and we talk about being in Christ. And we talk about our connection with Jesus. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that he is connected to us. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the connection that really makes the other connection possible and makes it real. You see, Jesus sees himself as necessarily connected. And so when something bad happens to us, Jesus is the one who experiences it that. And oftentimes in our Christian life, we, we make the judgment that woe is me, life is difficult for me, hard things have come to me, and I'm all alone. And if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I felt that hurt. I understand your pain because I'm connected to you. And that's why he could talk about those Christians who were being persecuted as he himself being persecuted. And so, so Paul is confronted by, by Jesus and confronted as if Paul is the enemy, one is doing something against you know, the Lord Jesus himself. And uh, Paul responds. He wants to know what's going on here in this dramatic uh, confrontation. And after he has this dramatic confrontation with the Lord Jesus, he asks the question, what shall I do, Lord? And Jesus directs Paul to go on to Damascus, and there he will receive uh, instructions about all that is appointed for you to do. Now, Paul is still blinded by this, this, this light that came to him, and he's so blind that, that, you know, I can just imagine Paul sort of stumbling as he gets up from the sand and, and sticking out his hand. You know, where am I? And one of his uh, companions takes him by the hand, and Paul has to be led into a Damascus. Now, uh, if you were in the crowd that day, one thing that, that ought to impress us as we look at this is, this is no simple little ordinary oddity that happens to this man as he's walking along the road to Damascus. This is supernatural. This is evidence of the way in which God, in the person of the Lord Jesus, intervenes in the life of this orthodox, in this pharisaical Jew. That's what's happening here. And I don't think that uh, Paul's audience would have missed that. And I don't think that Paul would like for his audience to miss that. I think his description here is very much for that point, if you will. And, and if, uh, I think this is purposeful. Paul, Paul's audience is made up of pious Jews. And what would dissuade them of their desire to murder Paul? And the only effective way in which he could get them from their murderous intent was to show them that the change that came about in his life was not some quirk in the works in Paul. It was divine intervention. God came to Paul in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and he stopped Paul by the, by the, by the power of that light and he instructed Paul on the road to Damascus. That's, that's what's going on here. It's, in fact, it was divine intervention that Paul, turned Paul from his intention to bring converted Jews back to Jerusalem to be persecuted and to be one who now comes back to Jerusalem to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Supernatural action is the only reasonable explanation for the dramatic change that took place in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now Paul goes on then to Damascus, and when he gets to Damascus, he is uh, introduced to a converted Jew whose name is Ananias. 
And I think we should be struck by the way that Paul introduces Ananias to this audience of Jews. Now, he's described, first of all, as a devout man. But note the way in which Paul describes him. He is a devout man according to the law. Ananias, just like Paul, is a Jew who has been converted, but he hasn't abandoned all of those rituals that may belong to Judaism. Uh, Paul was not instructed by someone ignorant of the law, nor instructed by someone opposed to the law. And look what Paul adds then uh, about Ananias. He had a good reputation in Damascus. And look at the way in which he describes that, that good reputation, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. What Paul wants to communicate to his, his attackers are that he was not one who was connected with a bunch of who opposed the law. Paul was a lawful Jew, and he, those he dealt with in Damascus, especially Ananias, had a similar reputation. And Paul's description of himself, his encounter with the Lord Jesus, his encounter with Ananias were directly counter to the false accusations that this mob had brought against, uh, brought against uh, uh, Paul. These, uh, particularly as it started with what uh, uh, Luke tells us, the Jews from Asia. And he shows that he's not one who's, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And uh, I, I would judge that at this, by this point, that Paul's argument has taken the wind out of some of the opposition that these people had against Paul. And this is further illustrated by the way Ananias sets out what Paul is appointed to do. Paul's appointment comes from whom? The God of our fathers. Again, if you're a Jewish uh, and you're raised in that Jewish tradition, you're taught in that Jewish tradition to say that you were, you were, you were to do something uh, that came from the God of our fathers is to settle right into the middle of Judaism. And Ananias uses uh, the language that would reflect his devotion to the law and the reason for his good standing among the Jews in uh, Damascus. And Paul demonstrates to the crowd that the charges against him are not supported by evidence. But he doesn't want them to draw the conclusion that there's nothing changed about the Apostle Paul. Because Ananias baptizes Paul. And Ananias tells Paul that baptism symbolizes what? The washing away of his sins. He adds that he is to calling on the name. The name here refers to the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul is really and genuinely uh, converted. Just for a second, let's just think about this a little bit. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's defending himself against these people who want to kill him because they say he's been teaching people everywhere, uh, everybody and everywhere, against uh, particularly the, the, the temple, but the law and all of those things as well. And, and, and Paul gives reasons why he is not opposed to the Jewish traditions. In fact, he was in the temple carrying out some of those Jewish traditions. But Paul doesn't want anybody to be confused. He's genuinely converted. He's baptized. He is marking himself out as a Christian. That's what baptism did in the ancient world of, of Judaism. It marked one out as a Christian. And, and Paul is not only doing, marking himself out as a Christian, but he's also calling upon the name of, of the Lord Jesus. He is acknowledging the sovereignty of Jesus over him. Now, what is Paul doing here? Paul has said, like he does when he, when he talks in, one of his, in his epistles, he says, you know, 
I'm a, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You know, that's, I'm, I'm first class when it comes to being a Hebrew. Uh, that's, that's his approach. And he's done the same thing here. He showed them that. But Paul is adding something to his Judaism. Paul is adding to, to the Judaism that he has followed, that he has discovered what Judaism is really all about. He's discovered what the faith of Judaism really leads to. And that is that it had a promised Messiah, but the Messiah has come. And that Messiah has come, that Messiah is Jesus, and that Jesus was put to death by the uh, uh, Jews. That's what they, tried, they did. That's what they did. They had him crucified by the Romans. That's what went on. And God raised him from the dead. And this has been consistent. You go back and you look at Peter's sermons, for example, and you see the way in which that theme comes up over and over again, the first part of Acts. So Paul wants these people to see that yes, he is still a practicing Jew. He is still okay going into the temple. He's not really doing what they have said that he's doing. And he is also one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, Paul talks about his return to Jerusalem. He goes back uh, to Jerusalem. And while he's back in uh, Jerusalem, um, he, he has a... a uh, a vision um, comes to him in a trance. But note the way in which he describes what he's doing back in the temple. He's praying. This is not a fella who comes into the temple to mess it up. He's not someone who comes into the temple to try to upset everything and destroy it. Paul is in the temple praying. And while Paul is praying, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, approaches him, if you will. Um, uh, I think that's what, what Paul is trying to, to get across to them here. And and, and Jesus tells Paul, he says, the Jews will not accept your testimony about me, namely about Jesus. And, and it seems that Paul honestly can't figure out why Jesus gives him those instructions. Why does he tell him that, that the Jews will not accept him? And uh, uh, he, he actually argues that what Jesus is saying to him doesn't make any sense to Paul. Uh, Paul is one of the Jews, the one that the Jews know about, who went from synagogue to another synagogue doing what? Uh, 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 imprisoning converts to Christianity. I mean, Paul was looking for them, not just in one synagogue, but in multiple synagogues, and he was, he was going after them. And these uh, uh, converts are imprisoned, we're told, and then they are beaten. And if Paul did that uh, to Christians, why wouldn't the Jews accept him? When Jesus, when Jesus tells them they won't accept him, uh, Paul is arguing with him. He adds the details about his role in the death of the Christian martyr Stephen. I mean, he witnessed the shedding of Stephen's blood. He, he he, uh, he approved of that. He actually said, here, give me your cloaks while you're throwing stones at them and I'll hold them. I mean, it's, that's basically what the apostle Paul did. And Paul is saying to Jesus, at, while he's in this uh, a trance, that it doesn't make any sense to say that the Jews uh, will not accept you at all. He can't fathom why Jesus made this demand that he lead Jerusalem. He judged that he would be readily received by the Jews. Uh, Paul's arguments do not persuade the all-knowing Lord Jesus, and he tells them, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, we, this is Paul's speech. He gives him this speech, and then he comes to that last line, that last line about what the Lord Jesus tells him. And the crowd's behavior completely changes. Uh, when Paul reports Jesus' words telling uh, Paul that, he would, that Jesus would send him to the Gentiles, the Jews find this statement worthy of what? Murder. Away with him. This guy's not worthy to breathe a breath. Kill him. 
If you're like I am, you ask the question, what happened? You know, Paul has been putting this argument together all along, and he seems to have evidence, evidence, evidence. What happens in this crowd? Well, we don't have time to, to unpack all that's going on, but first of all, if you were an ancient Jew, and particularly if you were an ancient Jew who happened to be in the temple that day uh, because you were interested in temple matters and you were, you were a quite devout Jew, uh, doing anything good for Gentiles would have been bad spiritually or religiously, and it would have been bad politically and probably also bad economically. You have to remember that the, the Gentiles, primarily the, the Romans, were those who were ruling over the, the, the uh, uh, Jerusalem Jews at that time. They were the ones who were, who were subjugating Israel, so politically it was bad. But they were also thought to be compromising, and there was the fear that they were compromising uh, the uh, religion, uh, religious exercises of the Jews. There was that, that kind of worry as well. So all these things are going on, and there is the historical uh, 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 theme that runs uh, through Judaism that, that uh, there are Jews and there's everybody else and Jews are chosen and everybody else is not. It's a theme that we find in Judaism. So when Paul says that Jesus said to him that he's going to the Jews, this is one of, one of the reasons at least why the Jews say this guy is worthy of murder. Now, once the Jews start doing this, they take their cloaks off, they start shaking them. I'm assuming that the shaking is probably get this stuff out of here. You know, you got dust in your cape. You do this, you shake it, so it becomes a symbol of get this guy out of here. Be done with it. Get rid of him. And the, uh, uh, the, the Tribune notes that there's something wrong. <laughs> I mean, these are people who've been listening to Paul. All of a sudden, they take their cloaks off and they're screaming at the top of their lungs saying, this guy's worthy to die. He knows it. Now, it can't, we can't be sure whether the Tribune understood what Paul said to the, to the crowd. We just can't be sure. We don't know if the Tribune spoke Aramaic. It's likely that he didn't. So, and if he did speak any Aramaic, it was itty bitty, you know, my kind of uh, whatever it was, Portuguese, uh, uh, you know, the, my eight words in Portuguese, <laughs> that's, that's all I got, you know. Uh, uh, but but uh, uh, we don't know what the, what the uh, 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 Tribune understood. We just don't know what he knew. And my suspicion is that, that he didn't know what Paul had said. He didn't know why all of the mess was going on. He couldn't figure it out. He didn't get it that Paul was trying to defend himself against the charges that the Jews had. So what does the tribune do? Well, he takes Paul and he takes him up to the barracks and he's going to use the Roman way to get to the truth. And the Roman way to get to the truth was to flog somebody. You see, if this person is some kind of witness, whether he is a, uh, someone who's charged with a crime or anything, one of the ways in which you got to the truth in ancient Rome was you stretched this guy out on a, a kind of a round thing and, and then you took a, a flogging and the flogging was done with a, a piece of wood and then that piece of wood had strips of leather tied to, uh, attached to it. And at the end of those pieces of leather, there would be pieces of metal or pieces of bone. And they would beat you with that. And when they swung it this way, it would hit you. But when they pulled it back this way, if it had hunks of metal or bone in it, it took flesh with it. So it was a really horrible way of doing things to people. And uh, the experts tell us that many people who were flogged would, would die. It was, it was capital uh, punishment almost for some because it was uh, fatal. Now, 
while Paul is getting stretched out, we're not sure exactly what the text means because whether he's being stretched out in leathers or to put the leathers on him, it's just not clear. But anyway, Paul, while Paul is getting stretched out, he looks at a centurion. That's an officer that's under the tribune. And he asks him a question. Is it right for you to flog a Roman citizen, uh, one that you haven't even taken to trial yet? Well, this gets the attention of the centurion because it is very clear that Roman citizens are not to be flogged. Uh, Just to read to you something that Cicero states the case for a Roman citizen very clearly. He says, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him an abomination, to slay him almost an act of murder. Now the centurion knows the rules. The first thing that he does is run to the tribune and say, hey, do you know what you're doing? And uh, we got a Roman citizen there, and we're about to do something that is clearly against the law, and if we get caught doing this, we're in big trouble. I mean, that's basically what the centurion is saying uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the tribune. Now, the, the tribune then goes to the Apostle Paul, and again, we find a kind of interesting interaction between Paul and the uh, tribune, because uh, the tribune goes to Paul and says to him, you're a Roman citizen? <laughs> I mean, you know, he still thinks he's this bumpkin Egyptian. That's sort of still in his mind. And, and then the, the, Rome, the, the tribune says to him, you know, I paid a lot of money to get my citizenship. And it's altogether likely that what he paid was a bribe. A lot of people speculate a little bit about this Roman tribune because his name is Claudius Lysias. We know that. We'll come to that later. And it just so happens that there's records of lots of bribery during the reign of Claudius for people to get to be citizens. That's one of the ways in which they did it. And so as a tribute to the one you bribed, or an addition to the bribe, I guess you could say, uh, maybe he put his name there as Claudius Lysias. All speculation, but speculation nonetheless that fits in with what's going on. And so uh, Paul... uh, 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 this, this, this uh, tribune says to the Apostle Paul, you know, are you a Roman citizen? I spent a lot of money. I probably bribed some people uh, to get my citizenship. And again, it seems that in my mind that Paul's doing a little bit of one-upmanship. It's sort of like, oh, you bought yours? <laughs> I inherited mine. And immediately, Paul's status would go up because inherited citizenship was much higher than citizenship that you got by bribing somebody. I mean, that's that's probably true today, isn't it? Uh, we, we would see the difference right away. It's very clear there. So, so it seems to me that's what's going on here, that Paul shows this uh, going on. Now, if we look at this part of the text, we may speculate as to why Luke includes all this. Why does he put all this in here? Why does he put this business about the Romans coming here? I don't buy the argument that some commentaries make that says that that Luke really likes the Romans and he's trying to make them look good. I don't think that's what's going on here. But it does seem to me when we look at this text very clearly, what we see is the way in which the Apostle Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 13 about the civil magistrate is actually illustrated in this text. Uh, If you look at uh, Romans uh, chapter uh, 13, let me just read to you uh, from verse 1 and then from uh, from verse 4. We read in verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Then in verse 4, For he is God's servant for your good. That's what Paul taught the Romans. Here's Paul, Jerusalem. 
just rescued from being murdered by a bunch of angry Jews. By whom? The Romans. The civil authority. And the Apostle Paul taught, but also in this situation, experienced that the state was established by God, by his authority, to carry out the things that he wanted to be done, and he did it for their good. And Paul benefits from this. And we'll see this theme sort of bouncing up again as we see Paul as he makes his trek, if you will, uh, onto, uh, onto Rome in the chapters ahead. Now, Paul's defense shows that he's innocent of those false charges uh, that the Jews from Asia brought against him. And Paul expect, respects and engages in uh, Jewish cultural expressions of traditional Judaism. That's very clear. And he does so because he sees the Christian faith, as I've already mentioned, as the outgrowth of uh, the faith of Judaism. And he makes his defense and its follow-up. He's carried along by God to the end that God has determined for him. And I think there's some things that we, we just may take a short time to think about in terms of this text because it's filled with fascinating kind of historical things that go on. But also I think we need to remember that, that Jesus is at work in his servant Paul and not in the way that Paul thought he would be at work in him and probably not in the way that any of us would think about as well. And, and we sit maybe being surprised, or at least I was. I've looked at this text numbers of times and there are things in it that surprise me. What's wrong with me? That Jesus works in our lives in ways that we would never expect. Now you could all stand up <laughs> and testify about the ways in which Jesus works in our lives in the ways in which we would never expect. Paul wrote to the people at Rome and told them all authority is established by God. And he benefited by that authority in Jerusalem. And my suspicion is that Paul didn't expect that. It's clear that he didn't expect it on his first visit back to Jerusalem because he argued with Jesus when Jesus said, they're not going to accept you. That's not what he expected. But nonetheless, God worked that way. Jesus works in our lives in that way. And again, why should we be surprised? Why should we be surprised that Jesus works in our lives in that way? When we think about ourselves, rebels against God, angry against God, sinning against God, failing to acknowledge God. And Jesus comes and says, angry against God, failing to acknowledge God, sinning against God, all evil things. And for those that I love, for those that I am united to, for those that I cling to as my children, I will suffer on the cross. And I will die for them. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the way in which God exercises his power in your life through the Lord Jesus. Look for it. Look for it. Cry out for it. Come, Lord Jesus, work in me. Come by the power of your spirit and in the midst of all sorts of things that are going on in my life. Please enter into my life. Make me just like you. 
conform me to your very image. That happened to the Apostle Paul. And if you have the faith of the Apostle Paul, it'll happen to you too. One day, one day, we'll be just like Jesus. Jesus who rules over you right now. Let's pray. We're so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you are the king of the universe, that you who were born the babe in Bethlehem are the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, and you rule in our lives. And we pray that you'll give us grace to submit to that rule and rejoice in it no matter what it brings, knowing that you are making us to be just like you. How wonderful that is. We acknowledge it and we praise you for it, Lord Jesus, and we offer our prayer in your name. And together we say, amen.